On Wednesday night, I shared a testimony that Darla and I had the privilege of hearing several decades ago, I guess, a couple of, must, must be 20 years back that we first heard this story. I wish I could say this was my testimony, but it's not. It's a testimony of a man by the name of Robert Cornwall. Uh, I don't know if any of you would recognize the name Judson Cornwall or not. Uh, a powerful teacher who's now with the Lord. But he was very instrumental uh, in the hands of the Lord in the 1960s and the 1970s of leading the church into the concepts of, of praise. Uh, very very influence, influential all around the world at that time. Robert is his brother. Robert is a lifelong pastor, has been for all his life called into pastoring uh, Pentecostal churches. Um, he's a gifted man. He, would, he has this gift of being able to go into a a small struggling congregation and he would be asked to take that church and maybe the church would be 50 people and under his leadership and his ministry it would grow to about 5,000 people. Uh, I didn't say 500, I said 5,000. Very, very gifted man when it comes to church building and church planting. Darla and I had the honor and the privilege of knowing Robert fairly well, and he served with us on our board of directors in our ministry back in northern Canada. And we had him up one time to teach a, a series, and he did a series over three, or was it four nights, on 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, where you have that scripture that we beseech you to be reconciled to God because we are ambassadors. Christ, and he was talking about what it meant to be an ambassador for Christ. And when he had these large churches, he was making the point that everybody has got a job description. When he would have a staff meeting, he would not expect the janitor of the building to give answers concerning the youth ministry. And he wouldn't expect the fellowship director to give answers about the Sunday school curriculum that they were used. Everybody had their particular job description. And you were expected to stay within your job description and everybody just functioned in that way and in that manner. And he says, when it comes to presenting the world with the gospel, that God has put together a staff of four. When he was giving this teaching, it was quite popular back those decades. The theme of spiritual warfare was very preeminent, and people loved to supposedly go up into the heavens and to challenge principalities and powers, and I'm bringing the Prince of Persia down, and I'm, you know, and it was very, very overbalanced and out of context teaching on on spiritual warfare, uh, for sure. But he says when, when God wants to bring his love to the world, he's assembled a staff of four. Everyone's got to stay within their, their job description. The first member of his staff, obviously, is his son, Jesus. 
Jesus has to come into this world. God has got to become a man. And he's got to demonstrate the nature of the Father. When you see Jesus, you see God. To learn about the heart of God. But part of his job description was to be that sinless sacrifice. Shedding of his blood on a a tree called Calvary for your sins and for my sins. No other sacrifice could be made except the blood of Jesus. And he gave himself for our salvation. Now when it comes to that part of the job description, none of us get confused. None of us are going to say, well, I'm going to shed my blood for the salvation of the world, as if my blood has the power to save anybody. Nobody gets confused about that. But then he says another member of the staff that God has put together is obviously the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring people to Jesus and it's to convict people of their need. Convict of sin. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then Robert says, aha, and the church does get confused with that. As if it is our responsibility to make people feel bad about their sins. As if it's our ability and our responsibility to bring conviction to people. You and I cannot bring conviction to anybody. That is the Holy Spirit's job. And we're working in the wrong department if we think we can do that. And we are not, that's not our role to convict people and tell them how terrible and how bad they are in hoping that they'll get the sense to repent. Um, That's not our job description. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. And then another member of the staff are the angels. And this is the part about spiritual warfare. Because a lot of the teaching of spiritual warfare is uh, some people can't pray unless they're binding some demon. You know, I bind this and I bind that. And it seems to me their prayer is more talking to demonic forces than it is talking to God at times. I bind this and I bind this and I call the principality of over this and the spirit of this over the city. And we bind this and they're all talking to evil spirits and principalities and powers and demons. I thought prayer was talking to God. You know, uh, but he said there is a war in the heavens. It says in the book of Revelation that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And there is a war, but it's not your war, it's the angels' war. Let them do the battling in the heavens. That's not your responsibility. And we take verses out of context where it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's not talking about you going into the heavens and doing warfare up there. That's talking about the war that takes place between your two ears. All the pieces of armor in Ephesians 6 have to do with truth and they have to do with the word of God. Every last one of them. And it's a war over what you believe. And, you know, the demons are involved in trying to lead people astray as far as what they believe and so on. There is a war in the heavens, but it's not your battle. Don't take on the job that angels are supposed to be doing. So, Jesus goes to the cross. The Holy Spirit does the convicting. The angels doing the war in the heavens. What's your job? There's another staff member, and that's the church. And here is the, the power of it. 
you are called, the church is called to love. You can smile at me or something. You are called to love. Let the Holy Spirit do the drawing. Let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. You don't have to twist anybody's arms. You are called to love. The Holy Spirit is called to draw and to convict. Jesus has been called and He's done His part. The angels are doing their part. But we love to do the work of the Holy Spirit. We love to do the work of the angels. And we forgot what our job description is. And our job description is to love people. We don't love them because if we do them a good deed, then we can get the gospel in. That's not loving people, that's using them. We love people because we love people. Amen. If we don't seek opportunities, and let's do a good work, so at least that gives us the ability to speak to somebody. If you're going to do good work, do good work because you love them. Not as a pretext that you're going to get something out of them. You have to love people for love's sake. And that's so important because that is the heart of God. And as Robert was teaching through this series with us, he tells a very personal story which uh, I want to share with you. Because as the leaders of Dwelling Place have been getting together and we've been talking a lot, we've been praying together, we're searching the heart of God, and we're asking the question, you know, how, how do we move forward as a congregation? What do you want us to do concerning missions? What do you want us to do concerning outreach? What do you want us to do concerning Bible teaching? What do you want us to do? And I wish I could say that like Moses, I went up in the mountain for 40 days and I came back and I had the whole plan in front of me. I wish I could say that, but it doesn't seem to be happening that way as much as I would like it to happen. Rather, what that is happening, it's here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. It says, I, my sense is that the will of God is being made known to us, just kind of like a, a mist starting to settle, and it's, you know, it comes slowly. You know? And as we've been seeking the Lord, and we've been discussing just every, every aspect about the church, the three of us in leadership, trying to find the heart. The three of us are praying together. And one thing I do know that God is asking us as a congregation, one thing I do know is that while we seek the presence of the Lord, while we seek the power of the Holy Spirit, while we seek the gifts of the Holy Spirit, yea and amen to all the above, that I feel in my heart an emphasis of the Holy Spirit speaking to me And he says, I want my people to become love incarnate. I want my people to become love incarnate. And right now that seems to me the mind of the Lord more than it is anything else. We've got to be love incarnate. That's going to be the power of the church is when they see you they see me the only thing they see is love for love's sake and that's what God really wants to to do I'm convinced of that that much I do know that I know that I know how it all works out I'm still seeking but I know that God says I want love incarnate that's what I have heard 
Robert tells the story that when he was a younger pastor, he would get called to these smaller churches. And because they were smaller, they didn't have the ability to finance him a full wage. So often what he would have to do was he'd have to take a part-time job. So I'm now talking, you know, decades and decades and decades ago, he was living in the state of Oregon on the western coast of the United States. And he was asked to take a church there in the state of Oregon, a small church. Uh, He was a young man and has to have a part-time job to support himself. But the part-time job was to be a chaplain in a mental institution. Now, these are the days when mental institutions were dehumanizing places. Cold, clinical, nothing human about them, harsh conditions. Robert did not exactly know what he was getting into when he took on this part-time job. But, you know, you've got to pay the rent, so it has to take this part-time job. He went into the mental institution. The administrator was a Jewish man and uh, calls him by his last name, Cornwall. He said, I'm going to take you to your charge. And he took him to a, a ward within the mental institution. And then he gives him a three-legged stool to which he handcuffs to him. And Robert is thinking, what exactly am I getting into when you have to handcuff a three-legged stool to me? And he really doesn't know. And they get to this ward in this mental institution, open the door, dark inside there. He goes in with his three-legged stool. And then he hears the door shut behind him and lock behind him. He's there for a few hours with no way of getting out. And he has no idea what he's just got himself into. And as his eyes adjust to the, the dimness and the darkness of this room, a sight unfolds before him. And what he has is 42 naked adults walking around the circumference of the room on the outside in a zombie-like state. Just walking, eyes down, around the outside of the room, and they're all naked, 42 adults. As I said, these were cold and cruel places. Robert is scared, obviously, wants to know where he is. Emotionally, I've ended up in hell. This is hell. These people, you can't get their attention. And he's scared, and he's sitting on his three-legged stool, and then he tries to get up and make some sort of connection. And He's a man of humor, and he tries to make a few jokes in, in his own crazy way, and he says, you know... Elevator doesn't quite go all to the top, and you know these kinds of things. He would say absolutely no response whatsoever. He just can't make connection, and he's fearful and he's scared, and he can't wait to get out of there. And the hours go by that he's there, and he's fearful. Where am I? And when the time is finished, they come to get Robert out of the ward. The door opens and. He's just ready to go out of there. I'll never, never, never come back to this place. Never. You know, but when you got to pay the rent, <laughs> you have to go back to work. He's determined. And the administrator says, on your way out, you better wash up. And sure enough, he looked down at his shoes and the bottom of his trousers and 
unknown to himself, he had stepped in a fair amount of human defecation. Cold and cruel places where you clean the people with the hose and wash the floors down. I mean, we just can't imagine how cruel these things are. He's determined. He's never going back there. But you know what? Next week comes around, you've got to pay the rent. And he goes back there with a certain sense of fear and trepidation. And for security's sake, what he did is he went back to an old childhood memory. He grew up in a very godly family. He's got, uh, I think, something like three brothers and one sister. All of them ended up in ministry. All of them, actually, a lot of them quite, quite famous in ministry in the 1960s and 1970s around the world, all of them. And his childhood memory was sitting in, I would say, the backyard. You would say the back garden of your house. Sitting under a tree in, a, in an innocent state. And as a child, he saw himself singing that old song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And he sang it to himself. And in, in, no matter how difficult this situation was, his security was, Jesus loves me. This I know. Well, he's got to go back. and There he is in that ward again. And the people are in this zombie-like state, just no connection with anything, walking around in the outer circumference of this, this room. And he's there, and he's fighting his battles. And he just begins to sit on that three-legged stool, and he begins to sing the song. Jesus loves me. This I know. He's there for hours. How many verses are in that song anyway? He sang all the verses that he knew, and then he invented verses. But he just, over and over, Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me, this I know. And part of it was just him battling his own fear of of being in hell. Jesus loves me, this I know. And they're walking around, these 42 adults. And then one of them, he said, was a big black lady. Walking by him, just bumped him. And he said to himself, I just made connection with somebody. And he picked this woman out. Was it you? Did you bump me? And this woman stops and says, Yes. Do you know this song? And she said, Yes. Well, what used to be heaven or hell has now turned into heaven. He said, Sit down. And Bertha just sat down in front of him and said, Sing this song with me. And she's apparently it was a big lady, she had this big voice, and she just began to sing, Jesus loves me. This I know. Well, Robert was excited. Made connection with a simple song, Jesus loves me. This I know. Well, the time was up. And they come to get him. And this time, he has no fear of coming back the next week. He can't wait to come back the next week. And the administrator looks at him and says, Cornwall, what have you done? He says, why? Because as he was out, all 42 of the people had stopped. They're wandering 
zombie-like state around the world, the room. And they watched him go, and the administrator had never seen that ever happen before. Well, he could hardly wait to get back there for the third week. And when he gets back there for the third week, open the door, they're in their zombie state, walking around the room in terrible conditions again. And when the door closed, all 42 of them stopped. And Bertha, the one he connected with the week before, Bertha, had all lined up against the back wall raised her hands and said, Sing! And all 42 of them, Jesus loves me. This I know. The long and short of the story is all 42 people hearing a message that somebody loved them. Of the 42, 40 were completely healed and restored back to society. Two of them had some physical diseases from which they could not recover. But 40 of them were restored back to society. One of them married one of his elders, and nobody except Robert knows where she came from. And he says, here we are as a church, trying to take down principalities and powers, trying to convict people, And he says, what the world needs to hear is that somebody loves them. These people are not mental. They just don't know love. Did you catch that? These people are not crazy. They're not depressed. They're not whatever word we want to say. They have never experienced love. And to hear that God loves them is a very important thing. But we want to preach messages of telling them how terrible people are. How awful they are. No, God loves them. Amen? God loves them. The world perishing for the sake of being loved. And we want to do the work of convicting. We want to do the work of war. We need to do the work of love. We need to love people. What had happened there in that ward was so powerful. I believe the administrator, Jewish man, gets saved because of it. So dramatic what happened, what the message of love would do. That he said, can we take this into all the wards of this mental institution? And Robert says, tell you what, I'll bring all the members of my church. And we will walk up and down the aisles of this mental institution. And we will do nothing except sing love songs about the love of God. That's all we will do. We won't preach to them. We won't tell them they're bound for hell. We will just sing songs about the love of God. So they did that. The transformation that took place in that mental institution was so great that the administrator, who was a friend of the governor of the state, introduced Robert to the governor of the state. And what happened is they took that program 
into all the mental institutions throughout the state. He said, save them millions of dollars as people were healed with a simple message that God loves them. Isn't that powerful? That God loves them. We are required to love people. I've told that story a few times this last week. I think it's the word of the Lord. I think it's the heart of God because as we as a congregation, we want to seek renting that building. We want to see the structure of the place come together. God, what do you want us to do? And I feel very much in my heart that God is addressing not so much at this moment what does He want us to do. What I am sensing He's addressing is what does He want us to be. Not so much what do we want to do as what does He want us to be. And I do believe that that is a challenge from the Holy Spirit, from the Lord. Yes, structure is important. Yes, for lack of a better word, I'll say programs are important. Yes, strategies are important. Of course they are. We can't live without a skeleton in our body. We need structure. But the most important thing I sense the Holy Spirit emphasizing is not the the skeleton, but the heart. The heart. That's what I'm sensing more than anything. I'm, concerned, I'm asking questions about structure, and God's answering on questions not of, not of structure, but He's on, on heart. That's what He's answering me. And I do believe that is the heart of the Lord. Who knows? Maybe we won't, you and I go visit the mental institutions and just do nothing but sing love songs. Who knows what the Lord have us do? Who knows? As we shared that on Wednesday, I think I was a little more emotional about it then than I am now. Maybe I've just told it too many times in the last few days. People need to know they're loved. And we have got to offer ourselves to the Lord as vessels. Not through whom the judgment of God will flow. Not through whom the anger of God will flow, but through whom love will flow. Trusting as this couple goes to India this week, tomorrow, that the love of God will be expressed, which I'm sure it will be. But that's the heart of the Lord. That's all we hear today. I think that's enough. Though I could preach for hours yet, believe you me. Amen. (laughs) The love of God is what this world needs. The love of God is what this world needs. Love people just because we love people. Is there sin in their lives? Sure. Would you look beneath the sin?
and see the person. See the person. Have they made mistakes? Well, who hasn't? See the person. See the person that God loves. I believe that's the Holy Spirit's challenge. Will you take it? Things aren't moving fast enough for me. And God says, but I want to address this issue of why and catch my heart, catch my spirit. And maybe then structure will be revealed. Catch my heart. Catch my spirit. On Wednesday night, I shared that at the time of prayer and a fairly detailed prophetic word came forward as well, just affirming the truth of what God is after. The city doesn't need another church. The city needs the love of God. Amen? Mm -hmm. Amen.